Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. The new Netflix series, All the Light We Cannot See, stars a native Rhode Islander with raw talent. Aria Mia Liberti had no acting experience when she auditioned for the role of Marie-Laure LeBlanc, a blind girl who was sending secret messages to the Allies during World War II. But she did have some significant life experience. Aria is legally blind. We'll talk about her journey from URI to Hollywood after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Aria Mia Liberti, who grew up in Rhode Island and now stars in the Netflix miniseries, All the Light We Cannot See. Thank you for joining us, Aria. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So first of all, tell us about your Rhode Island roots. Where did you grow up and how come you don't have a Rhode Island accent like mine? Well, honestly, I do have a Rhode Island accent, but you just have to pull it out of me sometimes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I grew up in Johnston. My parents are still in Johnston, and it was just a wonderful place to grow up. I feel like Rhode Island is so hard to explain to people who are not from here because it sounds like you're describing a small town, but that's really what it's like. Everyone knows everyone, and everyone supports everyone and tries to lift them up as best they can. And uh, I studied at URI, but then I moved away after college, And I have moved back to Rhode Island in June and am enjoying spending some time in East Greenwich where I haven't, unfortunately, hadn't gotten to spend much time there. But now I I love living there. It's a wonderful place. Oh, you're living in Rhode Island now? Yeah. No, I'm barely ever home, but I I love to be able to come home to such a beautiful, tranquil place, but someplace close to my family, too. It's a great place. So I, I read that you were taken out of school in third grade because your teachers weren't able to accommodate that you were blind. Tell me about your experiences in school. Yeah, I don't necessarily like to dwell on the negative. I like to focus on like how how far I've been able to come, but it's also a really important part of my life, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't have to face those obstacles. But essentially, the Johnston public school system did not want to accommodate my needs as a child, and needs that are really very, very simple, having access to a computer or a tablet and a seat at the front of the classroom and access to teachers to show me how to use a white cane and use assistive technology on my computer. And those needs were never provided to me, and it resulted in a lawsuit. Um, My parents had to advocate for me. 
but they also taught me how to advocate for myself. So from the time I was four years old, I was speaking at the state house and speaking in front of Rhode Island elected officials oh, wow. to try to change the system for blind and visually impaired and, and students in general with disabilities because there are laws in place to protect everything that I'm talking about, but they were never respected or honored. And a lot of times things were just swept under the bus. So in third grade, um, after I'd faced a lot of abuse and neglect and discrimination in school, there was no other choice but for my parents to pull me out and homeschool me. We used a homeschool curriculum, so they were not the ones actually doing the grading. And um, that was how I received my education, which was a lot better than having basically to come home from school sick every day because I was in pain and I wasn't being accommodated. It's definitely a long way to come from there, but it taught me how to use my voice for good um, because I realized that, you know, I had very loving parents to come home to. And we may not have had a lot of money or a lot of resources, but we had a lot of love and we were really creative. And I noticed that throughout the U.S. and throughout the world, there are so many kids who face that neglect, discrimination and abuse in school, but then go home to the same thing. And not everyone was as lucky as me. So I want to make sure that the world's a better place for them, too. Yeah, it sounds like your parents were great advocates for, for you. Yeah. And so just one other question about that time period. You know, my wife is a math teacher here in Providence. So I was amazed that the message you received in school uh, about girls and whether they were good at math. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, you know, my mom had really fought for me to get my materials um, enlarged for me. And they didn't do it. And she was like, well, why wouldn't you do this? It's the law. And they were like, it doesn't really matter. Like, she's blind and she's a girl. Mm. What's a blind person going to do with their life? And girls aren't even supposed to be good at math. Oh, man. And it was this constant messaging from everyone other than my family, really, that you don't matter. You don't belong in the world. Um, you're never going to amount to anything, basically because of something that's outside of your control, because of a couple of cells that are different than someone else's. Mm. And that's the message that a lot of kids are getting still today, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and you went you went on to URI, you had three majors, you became a youth delegate to the UN, you, you received a Fulbright scholarship, and now you're the star of a Netflix series. What What's the message that younger people can take from your experience? I'm really glad you asked that because I think a lot of people like hear that list of accomplishments and they think that, oh, that's that's just that person. Like she must have been the exception. And I, I'm really not. And I want people to make sure that they know that wherever you are in your life, it's, it's okay. You deserve to be happy and you deserve to be able to be your authentic self. And whatever it is that you want to do, regardless of how society treats those things, if it makes you happy, just go do it, and that means you're enough. With all your academic achievements there, you hadn't acted. So what made you audition for the role in All the Light We Cannot See? Well, I actually, I love everything I've studied, and I use it every single day, but I really wasn't happy. Hmm. I loved my time at URI because of the community that I built there. That was the first time that anybody ever told me that I mattered outside of my family. And I ran with that and I did everything. And I applied to the Fulbright, which is extremely competitive and, and I got it. And it was the middle of COVID and I went to England and as much as I loved what I was studying, I simply wasn't happy. And I had already gotten into a PhD, one of the best PhD programs in the country for what I studied um, at Penn State. And I moved there after I had lived in England for a while, and I also wasn't happy, and I couldn't really figure out why, because I was just really grateful for everything that I fought for and 
creating all this change and being able to live this life that I had imagined myself living and why am I not happy? And I got a text out of the blue from a teacher who I had um, when I was in elementary school, actually, Hmm. who helped me use my white cane. And she um, was one of those people I mentioned in the beginning who, like, you know, the school department wouldn't want me to have her services. So we would have to fight for me to be able to work with her and for me to be able to use a cane and, and learn those skills. It's It looks really easy using a white cane, but it's actually really hard. And kids study multiple times a week for their entire K through 12 education to, like, learn how to use a cane. And we hadn't really stayed in touch, but she every now and then saw my mom because it's Rhode Island, you, you see people. Sure. And she texted me and she said, I, I always saw you as like this like this theatrical kid and I wondered if um, you might be interested in auditioning. I don't know if you heard of this book. And I'm like, oh my God, I love that book. Are you serious? This is so cool. I, but I'm not going to audition. I don't act. And then she wrote back a couple days later and she said, did you, did you do it? I said, no. And then I hesitated and I thought about it. And I'm like, I'm having a really rotten week. I could just cheer myself up by reading for this role from a favorite book of mine. And maybe it was, maybe it's just fun. Maybe it'll be something that can give me a burst of energy. Maybe I can find a new hobby. Maybe this can scratch an itch. And I I did my tape in my bedroom. I didn't really have, um, I didn't really have friends there yet. I hadn't really met anybody and it was just really hard to make friends. So I recorded all of the lines for Marie's father on my iPad and then I hit record on those, and then I recorded on camera all of the lines from my character, Marie. So I didn't I didn't even read with anybody. I just put together a tape as haphazardly wow. as I could with the resources I had. And I never thought anyone would see it. I just thought I was doing it for myself. And I got a call back the next day, and then I had callbacks for three weeks. And then— Yeah, tell me about that moment when you got the role. Because how many people auditioned for this role? It had to be a lot. I've heard— Thousands upon thousands wow. have auditioned for this, and they—I know—they entertained doing a, you know, a, obviously a famous actress for this, and there are no blind uh, famous actresses, so there are now. Yeah, <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, but like, you know, I, 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 I can't even imagine. Like, so many people shot their shot, and I was just one of them. So I just didn't expect to get anywhere. And I kept meeting with people and meeting with people. And then they said, oh, you're going to meet with the director, Sean Levy. And Night at the Museum, which he directed, is one of my favorite childhood movies. And I've watched it five billion times. And Stranger Things was what my parents and I watched virtually while I was um, in college. Oh, my God. And so it was so cool. And it was one of my mom's favorite books. And I hadn't told her I auditioned. And when they called me to talk to Sean, I said, oh, maybe it's time to call my mom and tell her. And she was like, oh, that's so cool. That's so exciting. Like, oh, tell me how it goes. And I can't wait to see who they eventually cast. And, you know, we kind of in the back of our minds are thinking like, oh, this is going to be a a famous actress, but at least they're entertaining the idea of doing this authentically because it matters a lot to breaking down that barrier. And maybe the barrier is not going to be broken down this time, but for the next thing it might be. And and I had this whole little speech prepared that was like, okay, maybe you're going to reject me, but can you still keep looking for a girl who's blind to play this part? It would mean so much to this community. Um, and I got on a Zoom call, and, and I thought I was going into, like, a meeting or another audition. I didn't really know what. Um, and they told me I got the part, so I never got to give my little speech to them. But <laughs> that was that. It was, it was um, three weeks of whirlwind. That's awesome. So tell me about what it was like that first day on the set and what it was like working with great actors like you, Laurie, and Mark Ruffalo. 
I had never been on a movie set before. Um, I never even walked by a movie set in Rhode Island before. Um, I had a couple of months of preparation. I worked really intensively with a dialect coach because I use a British accent on the show. And I had a lot of pressure because obviously Hugh Laurie has the best British accent out of all the people (laughs) in the entire planet. And he's just amazing and he has the best voice. But I also worked with a coach um, from Juilliard that the production lined up for me. His name is Bob Krakauer. We never read anything. I never, quote unquote, did acting with him. But we went through every scene and I was really careful because I'm an academic. So I like, I wrote a lot. I had journals. I paired music and smells and sounds together to sort of develop what this character's psyche would be like because that's how we develop as people. And then when I got set, they were filming the scenes for the character Werner. Um, Those scenes do not include my character for the most part. And that took about three weeks to film and they did those first. And I actually shadowed Sean, the director, for those three weeks he would let me follow him around set and he would answer all of my questions while he was directing. He taught me so much about what happens behind and in front of the camera. So when it came time for me to play my role three weeks later, it became just that little bit easier. But at the same time, I'm like, Sean has said to me, to my face, but also in interviews, like I had instincts, but I wasn't really a good actor yet because like, just like when you're a painter, like you can't just pick up a brush and paint even if you have good instincts, like you have to study how to paint. So I was really glad when I said to Sean, please be candid with me. If I'm not doing well, you have to tell me, like I'm not, my ego's not gonna get burned. There isn't one there. I'm too riddled with anxiety to have an ego, dude. So just like, tell me if I'm not doing well and tell me what I can do to be better. And every day we had this relationship where he would tell me how to be great and I would try my best to do that. And I would teach him about the lived reality of being blind or low vision and working us out of all of these stereotypes that frankly have saturated movies for a hundred years. And together we learned from each other and it was amazing. Wow, that's something. You know, when I learn how to do something, I usually watch a YouTube video. How did you (laughs) develop that craft of acting very quickly when you can't watch examples or even take visual cues from other actors or your director on on the set? I do have a lot of residual vision in certain environments. In other environments, I'm totally blind. So if I go out in bright sunshine or there's like bright fluorescent lights, that's when I'm totally blind. But if it's controlled lighting, I have some residual vision and that's when I can get to enjoy visual things. Um, So I would focus a lot on that. And I've always been a really big film fan a big film lover through my whole life. So I like, I never really like studied the acting from them, but I went back and appreciated a little bit more coherently, I guess, what I liked in certain actors and what I might not like in others. You know, it's, it's hard on set because everything's really moving very quickly. So you don't really have a lot of time to ask questions. And also the lighting is really variable. So like I, I wouldn't necessarily be able to look at a monitor and see myself back the way another actor would. So I have to have a lot of faith Right. Um, and what I'm doing, and I have to develop a very, very strong amount of control. But I trained for about 13 years as a classical ballerina. So I think a lot of it, I have, a, I, I, I use that training because that developed control in my muscles and in my body, maybe not in my face and my emotions, but it was a transferable skill. This character also is very stunt heavy, which surprises people, but it's, it's quite a few 
uh, quite a lot of stunts, and I was able to do all of my own stunts. And, oh, under the bridge with the, the under the water yeah, and all that. Yeah, under the water. Oh, my yeah, goodness. so yeah. that was all, everything you see on screen um, was me, except driving the car through the chickens. Um, so because I'm not a chicken murderer and I'm, I'm vegetarian, so I. Um, <laughs> That's not something that they typically allow actors to do, but I was really adamant that I wanted this to be very authentic. So what's what's it been like to go from uh, being a college student to becoming a movie star basically overnight? (laughs) I don't know, man. (laughs) Um, So it's really odd because, you know, I just, I was always like very, one of those people that was like wanted to be invisible you know, the way I dressed and the way I just went through college was very much like nose to the grindstone, you know, just just kind of doing my thing. And then a couple of weeks ago, I'm walking in Times Square and there's my face. Holy cow. And it's 25 feet tall and people are looking at it and taking pictures of it. And that was scary. And so like that was kind of my like, oh, my God, my WTF moment of, um, (laughs) well, you've come a long way. And not only do I feel like I finally found the career that I've meant to I, you know, I, I sort of feel like I've meant to be doing this my whole life. And I just, because of how the world treated me, I never thought it was an option. So I'm really happy for the first time, like really universally, every part of my life, I feel happy and I feel free. And I feel like I can finally have the freedom to be myself, which is amazing because so many people now are seeing me for the first time, but I didn't ever take the time to actually see myself before. I love when people reach out to me about the show because it's been out a couple of weeks now. And like, I receive thousands of messages on social media every day and I can't respond to all of them, but I read all of them every night I go through and I read all of the messages and I take them to heart and I hold them with me and I carry them with me. And um, that's why I do this. Like, that's why I want to make art because it touches people. Mm. What were you planning to do before you auditioned and what are you planning to do now? I never really knew, honestly, what I wanted to do. I, I kind of, I, as you know, I did a lot of advocacy. I, I studied a lot. I, I thought maybe I would be a professor, but I, I wasn't terribly happy in academia, even though I loved what I studied. I had a lot of degrees, so I was trying right, my right, best. Right. But at Penn State, I was studying um, ancient rhetoric, so basically the ancient history of language. And I love that topic, and I honestly, I use it every single day still because we're creating a new language around representation in film that doesn't exist. So I still use what I study, but I don't know what I was going to do. Now, you know, I have the honor of doing this work, and I've been really grateful and lucky that I've received so much support from my amazing team of representatives, but also from people like Sean and Mark, you know, whether it's castmates or, or fellow people in the industry who have really lifted me up and and been able to present so many opportunities to me. And um, the day that all the light wrapped, my agent connected with me because, you know, during during that process, I, I had to get an agent and I had to get people to basically represent me and keep me safe during the process. And he texted me and he's like, are you ready to audition? I was like, oh, I've never really tested that, that leg. I'd love to try to audition for something because all the light was my, my first one. And he sent me an audition and I found out I got that one too. And so I have another series coming out in the spring. Can you tell us about the new role? I can't tell you too much, but I'll, it's um, called The Spiderwick Chronicles. It was another favorite book of mine, actually. It was a favorite book when I was really little. Um, and the character that I play in that series is a new character that is not in the book. Hmm. And um, she's really, really fun and mysterious. And I'm, I can't tell you too much, but I am excited for people to meet her. 
And one last question. You know, All the Light We Cannot See is set in World War II, obviously. But in watching the series, I couldn't help but think that we're living in some dark times now, you know, with the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East, climate change catastrophes and all those things. Do you see any message in the series that applies to the world today? I think the primary message of the series is hope, that even in really, really dark times, you might not be able to see the light you might not be able to find it within yourself, but it's there and you just have to pull it out. And I think that's what this character also symbolizes for everyone she meets in the series. She is their beacon of hope in one way or the other. And that's why it's such an honor to play her, but an honor to tell this story. And we did not plan for it to come out at such a timely moment, but oh my God, did it. These things are happening right now. And on screen, you know, the story of Saint-Malo, the bombing of that town was very real, but the characters depicted in the series were were not real. Um, And it may seem at times like a bit of a fantasy, and it is a fiction, but their stories are are happening in one form or another throughout the world right now. And I hope that it's a way that we can all be a little bit more connected and humanize one another. I think that's the power of storytelling in general, but especially with something like this, it's amazing to be a part of it. And I hope it reaches the people it should. And I hope it reaches people who enjoy it and feel something. And it's really special. Aria Mia Liberti, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows, you need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.